This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. This is a story that uh, has started, and uh, and now we're going to see where it will end up. Councillor Matthew Green has hired a civil rights lawyer uh, to represent him at a, a police disciplinary hearing. The uh, Hamilton Spectator is reporting. Uh, he's, from what we understand, an expert on this matter, and uh, the councillor has uh, obtained him in order to. Uh, continue on with this case. He filed a complaint against the Independent Police Review Director after uh, alleging he was arbitrarily stopped by police while waiting for a bus. This was back in the spring, back in April. Uh, The provincial agency directed Hamilton Police to lay a disciplinary charge against the officer accused of carding or street checking. Uh, of course, Councillor Green is black. For those who think that uh, police carding is over, I was just arbitrarily stopped and questioned by Hamilton Police as a city councillor in my own city, is what he tweeted after that happened. Uh, the Police Services Act hearing into the matter scheduled to, uh, for December 15th at 10 o'clock. To talk about all of this, Dr. Gary Ellis is with us, Head Justice Studies Program, University of Guelph Humber, and is with us now. Hello, how are you, uh, Justice? Good to speak with you again, or to have you on for the first time. I guess. Uh, uh, Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. My pleasure. Uh, Gary, let's try to uh, let's try to clarify this right off the top. What is the definition of carding? Uh, How do you differentiate between carding and community policing or or beat policing or or any of that sort of thing? Yeah, uh, carding never existed actually uh, until it became, a, I guess, a media short form. Uh, it's really a person's investigated record, and what has happened, uh, I was in policing for over 30 years myself, was any time you had any contact with anyone, investigated them, spoke to them, uh, you could put in um, a very short, brief record of where you were, who you spoke to, what the interaction was about. And that was kept in a database, and um, it served a, a couple of purposes. One is you knew who was in your area, who was in your beat. Let's say I walked the beat in Young Street in Toronto, and uh, you know who was there at a certain time. And it also acted as a, a bit of a crime prevention tool because uh, the people who were hanging around who uh, were up to no good, uh, the police were talking to them and so on, it sort of discouraged them from committing crimes. So that's uh, that's all it is. It's mere record of a police contact with a person. Uh, what is the difference between that and community policing? Just the fact that you're you're writing it down, the fact that you're taking record of it all? Well, actually, if it's done properly, it actually complements and supports community policing because community policing is essentially the police interacting with the public uh, and problem-solving. So uh, on the positive side, and uh, I guess let me just take a step back because I think there's three sides to this argument. There's the uh, uh, actual um, police have their side of it said, hey, this is good for preventing crime, knowing who's in the area, um, knowing what's going on. Uh, the public, some of the public are saying it's discriminatory, you're picking on uh, uh, specific groups. And uh, then the third part of it, it really comes down to um, in the middle. Um, you know, wh- why are the police doing it and how are they doing it? I think that's the third part that people are really complaining about is the way the police are acting when they're investigating people. So there's really three main issues. So as far as community-based policing goes, uh, you want positive interactions with police, even though they're doing their duties that might impact on you. And if they're not carrying out their duties in a proper form or it seems arbitrary or picking on a certain group, then people are going to get their their backs up. So uh, as far as community-based policing, if the police do with good customer service, um, telling people why they're doing it. We've had robberies in the area. There's been shootings. There's been something going on. I'm just taking your information. Here's what's going to be done with your information. The majority of people have no problem with that. But when they walk in and say, what's your name? Show me some ID. Write it down and walk away. Um, people, especially if they, they're feeling that they're a part of a visible minority in some way, may feel that they're being picked on. So why do, uh, and again, my question here is, and where I keep getting confused on this, is the difference between a cop walking the beat, getting to know the people in his neighborhood, and carding. Yeah, there is no difference. It's uh, The big difference, I guess, is you're actually taking a record of it. It's going to a database. People you're writing the information down. done with that database. Uh, you know, do they have a criminal record and so on, in which they don't, but police can refer to it if there's a crime in the area, who was there at a certain time, who was hanging out with who. So it's an intelligence-based tool that really has no, or should have no consequence to the person other than helping the police have a picture 
of what's going on in that community, which actually would assist in problem solving. And like I said, where it becomes a real problem is if it's senior picking, picking on a certain person or a class of person uh, at the uh, end, um, not on the community as a whole. How do you police that? Well, what you police is, I guess it was my third piece, is uh, proper customer service. I don't think the police have told their story well in this whole incident. Um, you know, there, there's been sort of, we're doing it because we can, um, denying that perhaps uh, the percentages of people of certain groups are being uh, investigated more than others. But within that, they're not telling the story. Why? What's going on in that particular geographical area? What is the crime picture? Are there shootings going on in that area? Why are you stopping people? The police need to have these answers and to justify what they're doing. And if they don't, if they're just saying we're doing it because we can, then people don't like it. Um, do you think do you think that the fine line is when they're actually recording the information? I mean, you know, if you've got somebody who's community policing and doing it on a daily basis, you know, in the same area, I mean, don't you always sort of know who who's good, who's bad, what's going on? No, well, you do because you're doing this, but if you're being prohibited or restricted from doing it, then you um, don't know what's going on, and that's the downside. Well, I guess, I, as I said to you before, I think the point is, is you know, there's something when you're, you know, a cop's walking the beat, and he sees somebody, and he says, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? And starts off a conversation with them, as opposed right. to, you know, starts taking down, okay, your name is Sir, and where are you from? What's your address? I mean... You know, I think that's where the where where people get their backs up. It's like you know, it's one thing getting to know the neighborhood. It's a, another thing writing down everybody's personal information and what they're doing well, standing it, on their own street. And there's a price to pay for safety. I think that's uh, the argument. And if it's done properly with good customer service, and the police officer explains to you why they're taking the information, what they're doing with the information, perhaps what's going on in the area where they're just asking everyone, I'm sure, sir, you have nothing, um, no problem or anything else. It's just we're just trying to keep track of who is in this area uh, because we've had this going on. Um, you know, uh, here's what's going to be done with your record. It's kept in an internal police database. It's not used for any employment or travel or anything like that. If you explain it, um, you're well along the road of having people accept it. They may not like it. But there's a price to pay for uh, safety. And uh, the, the downside of where the price is, and we're seeing this in the United States, there's a lot of uh, talk about this and some research going on, is where the police have said, fine, we're just not going to talk to people. And violence and crime is out of hand. I think that's one, but let's be honest, that's one extreme to the other, is it not? It I sure mean, yeah. um, you know, and, you know, as, as a middle-aged white guy, I've, I've never, other than, you know, if I'm pulled over at a traffic stop, and someone says, can I see your license? And you look at it and they'll give it back to you. Or if they're, you know, it's a stop, they may run it, uh, this sort of thing. But, I, you know, I don't think I've ever been in a scenario where somebody has said to me, um, what are you doing here? What's your name? Like, again, mm-hmm. what what would be the reason? How do police take down this information? Well, well very often. If I'm walking along the street and I get stopped, what, what would the scenario be? Okay, well, two things. One is if you're pulled over, uh, very often you, the police will be checking you out. They may have put a person investigator card in on you, so you may have that without knowing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the interaction would be, let's say, uh, I'm in an area, downtown Hamilton. Um, you know that there's high crime. There's been street robberies. Uh, you get out. You see some people hanging around. You don't know who they are. And uh, the proper way, I think, of doing good day, sir. You know, I'm constable so-and-so. Um, I work in this area, and I'm just, uh, we've had uh, some crime issues and so on, and um, I'm just trying to get to know who's in the area. Do you have any identification, or uh, uh, could you please give me your name? And um, you proceed from there. And uh, the person gives the name, say, okay, I'm going to take this down. I'm going to be doing a person investigated card on you. It just goes in our database in case there's any problems in this area. We can uh, get a hold of you to see if you've seen anything and uh, to keep the area safer. You know, it's just a, a, a full disclosure what you're doing with it. Yeah, I can see how people would have a problem with this. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and to me, it's, it's, it's the difference is, is when you're taking the information down and putting it in a database. And again, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if it's a crime scene, completely different story. I mean, completely different story. You're looking for witnesses. You're looking for people who, you know, I mean, that's that's totally different. I, I guess the difference is this has gone on, um, I guess, if you go back uh, for 40 years that I know of. 
it's gone on and it's always been kept in databases uh there's very little um very few complaints about it until recent history right. uh when it's been related to uh picking on uh, identified groups um so there's been a history of it there's been safety in canada i'm concerned um that to take away the police right basically to speak to people and gather the information um you may be leaving the community in a more dangerous situation. Hmm. Uh, what's the solution? I mean, because obviously, uh, you know, it wasn't, I don't know if it wasn't a problem 40 years ago. It just certainly wasn't reported 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, it is a problem uh, now. So what yeah. is the solution? Uh, well, if I was <laughs> writing the policies, I would say, first of all, the police should have a bona fide reason for speaking to someone. Um, it doesn't have to be they have reasonable grounds they're committing a crime. That, if they had that, they would be arresting them. But they should have a bona fide reason that there's uh, the area, that they know there's crime, there's something going on, the person is acting in a manner that is somewhat suspicious. Um, it shouldn't be arbitrary, first of all. Uh, secondly, the police officer should have a checklist of five or six things they need to do. Number one, identify themselves, identify why they're speaking to the person, to show it's not arbitrary, identify that they are gathering their information, identify what's going to happen with that information, and um, that would go a long way. Um, to It's how you deal with it. I've done some research on this, and the complaints people have made against the police are less about what they've done and more about how they've done it. And so I think the answer is to have full disclosure. And, you know, there's other things about giving the person a receipt and so on and so forth. That that goes towards, okay, you're part of the process now. It's not just going in some dark hole. You have uh, some way of saying, okay, this is the officer I spoke to. Because hmm. it, it cuts both ways. There are many times police officers in the past have spoken with somebody, and the person wants to complain, and they have no idea who the police officer was. So this also gives them an opportunity to say if they're not satisfied with their interaction, um, Here's who the officer is. Here's some uh, information that I can complain if I need to. Uh, is it possible to have a uniform approach in the sense that, well, I guess it is because every other police service has done it in that way, not service, but every other every other uh, interaction that they're going to have with the public, uh, whether it's making an arrest or this or that or, or what have you. Uh, is this something you feel that, uh, that, that police services can get a handle on and keep everybody happy? I think it's difficult now. As I said, I think they told their story poorly in the first place, and it's got out of hand. And you, There's a big factor of special interest here uh, piling on. There's the American effect, the Ferguson effect, and a lot of people, just like in this discussion, don't fully understand what it is for and what the reasons is. All they see it is a racial tool that the police are using against groups. Um, so th- there's a lot of bad... Um, bad information out there. Uh, that being said, you know, we have a situation in Hamilton where there's a counselor, and this is all, uh, you know, still before the system and such, but where there's, where there's a counselor here in Hamilton who was approached this way, and I mean, you know, we certainly have no reason to believe or not to believe his story, that's for sure. Um, and, and, you know, it has a lot of people questioning what's going on. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure approach has a lot to do with it because of what the counselor had told us previously in regard to how he was approached. It certainly didn't sound like it was in a professional manner. Yeah, and I think that's a big factor. And as I said, that's what underlies a lot of the problems people have. Um, You know, in a free and democratic society, I think we're pretty happy about living in Canada and the freedoms and the safety that we have. And I think we also recognize that there are some prices to pay for that freedom. The laws themselves are a price. They're a restriction on our behavior. And we have traditionally um, respected our Canadian police officers because of the approach they've had. And I think any time you have a negative approach where someone is exerting their authority, um, it now brings into question, well, should that person have that authority if they're going to abuse it in such a manner? And I think that really gets to the heart of the issue here. I'd hate to see the day in Canada where the police just stood back, and I've seen this in some European countries, they stand back in groups of 10 or 15 waiting for something to break up, but they never question anyone. They never know what's going on until it actually breaks out. So that's not crime prevention. That's reacting to a crisis, and we don't ever want to get there. Dr. Gary Ellis is with us, head Justice Study Program, University of Guelph, Humber, retired superintendent, Toronto Police Service, many years of investigative experience. Uh, Gary, again, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great.
Nice talking to you. It is 1227. We got a couple of responses here from uh, Councillor Green's office. Uh, He's scheduled to be in the Mayor's uh, Intelligent Community Task Force and uh, couldn't join us today to talk about this. And uh, with the uh, Hamilton Police Service, uh, there, of course, is this is before the Police Services Act and the proceedings, and they want to protect the integrity of the proceedings. So we did offer uh, both a chance to speak, and uh, that's the way it ended. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, so the Auditor General, who's turned out to be this government's just absolute best friend. Oh, you can tell that... Uh, I think uh, Auditor General Lissick and, uh, and and Premier Wynn, I think they're lunching all the time. Yakety, 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 yak, lunching all the time. That's my feeling. Uh, the Ontario Energy Board says it will not clarify the global adjustment charge on your bill, despite the Auditor General's recommending to do that. Uh, Bonnie Lissick, Auditor General, previously estimated the charge accounted for 70% of your bill. Although users don't quite understand what it covers. That's the whole idea. According to the Independent Electricity uh, Electricity System, IESO, who calculates users' global adjustment each month, there's so many people with their hands in the the cookie jar here, it's unbelievable. Uh, Who are these guys? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, The charge accounts for the differences between the market price and the rates paid to regulated and contracted generators and for the conservation uh, or for the conservation and demand management programs. So this is all that mishmash. Well, this is the mistake. This is what Kathleen Wynne refers to as the mistake. It's all in that 70%. It varies from month to month and responds to changes in the hourly electricity price. Uh, Lissick says the global adjustment on time of use rates was not transparent to taxpayers. She recommends hydro bills be changed to separately disclose pricing components for the electricity market and the global adjustment. This was like the cap and trade. People want to know what portion of it is going to these programs, which really don't seem to generate anything. They're just political propaganda. Uh, Again, we all want to be green. We're all trying to be green, but these guys are blowing money left, right, and center, so says the Auditor General. Uh, However, the Energy Board says it will not be doing this by breaking down the figures because breaking down the figures would likely create more confusion for the consumer. Why don't you let us decide that? Why don't you let us decide? Because I'm sure if you asked anybody right now, they'd say, yeah, go ahead, confuse me some more. Like what a pile of BS. And you bad actors, you bad actors, you're all buying into it. Because you voted her with another majority. How many times in a row? The OEB says it would rather rely on the IS on the IESO to publicly report the breakdown of changes charges for businesses and consumer categories. It will also consider conducting pilot projects on other potential chart changes that could make the energy bills easier to understand. No, 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 no. Making the lettering any bigger isn't going to help. Just tell us what that 70% is all about. You don't have to waste any more money doing any more studies and reports on what other lines you can explain to us. Just give us this one right here. What does this mean? It's the one I got the red circle around. What's that global adjustment all about? Where is our money going that's 70% of our bill? Excuse me. See where my pen's pointing? Can you explain that line? Here's what Wynn had to say on what the OEB had to say. Well, the OEB is a, you know, it's an independent regulator. They make these decisions based on their, uh, on their determination. So, um, so it really is up to them to decide what's going to be on the bill and how it's going to be, how it's going to be represented. How can she possibly say that and keep a straight face? Like, honestly, you don't, you don't have any control here at all? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Here's even more BS. Get ready. Here it comes. Get your shovels ready. You know, I think the clearer we can be about uh, information that's coming into people's homes, the better off we are. Um, But again, the OEB makes those decisions. Then why not do it? Then why not do it? Are you kidding me? 
You're passing the buck and you're calling us bad actors? You're calling us bad actors? Holy smokes. You guys are giving us an, an Oscar winning performance here. Seriously. You know, and this is the same government that's going after the travel industry because when you see the price in the newspaper or the ad online that says your trip's going to cost you $7.99, it actually ends up costing you $1,200 because of the hidden fees and taxes. So we're going to make private business explain that because nobody knows when you buy something that all the taxes and stuff get added onto it. How come you want private industry to do that, but you don't do that? It's the same as cap and trade. People want to know where the money is going to go on their energy bills regarding cap and trade. No, we're not going to do that. Why? Because Ontario is too stupid. They don't know how, they wouldn't know. That's just too confusing. Okay, how about doing what the Auditor General said and telling us about the 70% 70 portion of our bill, the majority of our bill that they don't even explain to us. They want the travel agency to come clean, the travel industry to come clean. But they, the, the OEB is a separate, hey, we don't interfere with what they do. Are you kidding me? Kathleen Wynne, your nose is growing. You've already poked us in the eye with that nose. Holy smokes. How do you sleep at night? 1,400 families. You had to reconnect because global news embarrassed you. And now, and you're calling us bad actors, but not about your mistakes. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. No wonder your approval rating is the lowest of anyone's. But still, somehow, I'm sure the conservatives will manage to shoot themselves in the foot. But that's another story. Anyway, let's bring in Parker Gallant, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. He is with us now. Hi, Parker. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. And you? I'm very well. Parker, it's not her fault. It's the OEBs. Why are we not phoning up the OEB and finding out what's going on? It's not win at all. It's the OEB. Uh, I found that rather funny. Uh, I mean, I, I just, I'm in a page on the Ontario Energy Bird website. And I'm noticing quite a number of directives that have come from the Minister of Energy. So they could direct the OEB to actually force disclosure, but they don't seem to want to do that because it might prove embarrassing, I would imagine. There's just so much in that, you know, damn global adjustment that uh, uh, people wouldn't understand. Like, you know, we pay for MET stations to measure whether or not how much wind might produce. Uh, because, you know, the wind developers get paid for not producing any energy. So things of that nature are in there in that global adjustment. You know, the, uh, Their excuse is, is that we just wouldn't get it. Well, it might be too confusing because I, or would I, I it, would it be too confusing? Goes on for probably three pages. Would it be too confusing, Parker, or would it just you know offer it would more be too questions? Embarrassing, not confusing. <laughs> too embarrassing. I, I think that's a different adjective, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, one question may lead to another, though. But isn't that a good thing? I think it is. I think you know all this talk about transparency. Uh, you know, if it, if it suddenly showed itself uh, in the face of the Ontario Energy Board, that would be a real good thing. The, the other thing I must uh, tell you is that my good friend Tom Adams discovered that the Ontario Energy Board has actually issued a uh, request for a proposal, and the request for a proposal uh, is, is um, asking for a company to come in and, and reformat their sort of outlook on, on life, right? They want to uh, make sure it, the brand that the Ontario Energy Board has is okay. Yeah. That's what we need. We need more branding. We need more. We need a rebranding. Re yep. <laughs> we need that logo. People associate that logo with bad things, so we need a new one. Yes, that's you got it. <laughs> oh man, um, you know, obviously, uh, the Auditor General has spoken up against this. Seventy uh, percent of the bill is global adjustment. She feels that 
you know, it, it just simply isn't transparent considering that, that high percentage. The same thing uh, has been said about when cap and trade will be implemented, that we won't know the costs of that either. Um, you know, when they're doing all, and believe me, they've repackaged the electricity bill so many times, uh, you know, and, and it, it's all just smoke and mirrors. How can they possibly think that the people are going to buy into this? I mean, that are just going to sit back and and not and not understand where their money's going. I know they're going to, but they're going to get disclosure on the eight percent, you know, provincial sales tax coming up, just as we've had disclosure on our bills for the last year on the fact that we're no longer paying the debt retirement charge. Right? They actually tell us, oh, you this month you've saved so much. But they didn't tell us how much the cost was when they removed the 10% Ontario Clean Energy benefit. I mean, it's just, you know, pick and choose what messages you want to get out there. It's just deceptive as hell. Um, excuse my, my expression, but, mm-hmm. you know, the deception that's coming into uh, this transparent government is just incredible. They're hiding everything as far as I'm concerned. Uh- I mean, we, we're paying for water spilling over dams. We're, we're paying for all kinds of ridiculous things that are in that global adjustment. There's no reason why they can't say, here's how much, you know, spilling water cost you last year. Here's how much curtailing wind cost you, et cetera, et cetera. Well, again, by disclosing all of this, there, you know, this is all an education progre- uh, pro- uh, process in, in order to inform Ontarians not only where their money is going, but what is going on. Yeah, it's probably, you know, if they actually did that, that would scare a lot of people. And, uh, you know, wind's rating would go down even lower, I'm sure. But, you know, I mean, I remember there was an ad on an educated consumer is our best customer. You know, I mean, isn't that the idea here? The more that you know what's going on, the better it's going to be for everybody. Yes, but when you've made a lot of bad decisions without cost-benefit studies, and remember... Uh, our Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, said that before, as well as, uh, I think, McCarter before her, said, you know, there's been no evidence that there's been a cost-benefit study done for any of the processes that have gone on in the uh, Ministry of Energy. And that's missing, and I think that might prove very embarrassing if the full disclosure actually came out. Uh, how long can this keep going? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like they're even really making any effort to pull it out. Well, of course, we had uh, Minister Thibault speaking to the uh, Empire Club there about, what, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And he said we're going to be agnostic in terms of uh, what kind of generation uh, we're going to ask for in the future. But he also has told us as well that we have a robust supply of energy that will last us for at least a decade. So, you know, he won't even cancel uh, that 1,000 megawatts that he said he was going to acquire just back in April. The Minister Shirelli, when, when he was in that seat, said we want another 1,000 megawatts of renewable energy. And then, you know, a few months later, we get uh, um, minister, the new Minister Thiebaud coming out and saying, well, we're going to suspend that yeah. because we've got this robust supply for the next 10 years. They don't uh, seem to know what's going on. With what is happening in the United States and the election of Donald Trump, and nobody can seem to predict what's going to happen there at this point either, but will they not? Will there not be more pressure to come clean on this sort of thing and find out exactly what it is costing us when it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to be the, 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 the make or breaker when it comes to being competitive? One of the issues that I've always wondered about, and I was an international banker banker in my previous life, um, was why no U.S. energy companies have not attacked Canada under the you know the NAFTA agreement, because we are selling our power for such a cheap cheap price. We, the, you know, the province of Ontario's ratepayers, are subsidizing our sales into New York and Michigan. We're selling them. Uh, stacks of energy every year and losing money on that and they're basically subsidizing which is not allowed under NAFTA I'm, I'm not sure why one of the big you know, uh, energy generators down there haven't come after us and that may come with Trump being in the president's chair uh, also, what kind of disadvantage does that put on Ontario in when not only are they getting tax breaks in some of those cities, but they're also getting cheaper power than we are from our own government? 
Well, I mean, I've heard uh, several people tell me, and I go around doing sort of town home presentations about what's in your energy, what's in your hydro bill, um, that, uh, you know, they have actually seen brochures coming across from New York State or from Michigan or elsewhere, uh, you know, kind of soliciting uh, businesses to move across. And we've lost them. We've lost quite a stack of, of companies and, and investments that could have come into the province. I heard about one down in the, the uh, Chatham-Windsor area, uh, $85 million was invested in a greenhouse, uh, which would be a very large greenhouse. But it wasn't invested in Ontario, which was the original plan. It was invested in Ohio. And the reason was because they're getting cheap electricity prices. So there's been a lot of that that's gone on, but there's no press releases about that. Why doesn't the uh, OEB just want to, um, you know, get this off their plate and say, okay, here it is, and if it, it's confusing, it's confusing? Because if it's as confusing as every as they say it is, then gee whiz, we're not going to know what it is anyway. Well, I I don't, you know, I think they they don't want to tackle it because uh, maybe they perceive that whoever discloses is going to get a, a lot of abuse from that point forward. And I, so there may be some hesitation there amongst the bureaucrats that, you know, sit in the chairs at, at the OEB, that if we put this bad news in, we're going to be the ones that will be blamed for it rather than, you know, uh, p- pointing the finger to where it rightly belongs, the people that were giving directives to the Ontario Power Authority um, before it merged with IESO, you know, acquire this generation, acquire that generation, spend money on this, spend money on that. Uh, so that might be behind them. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, obviously, uh, other reports today talking about uh, Kathleen Wynne's uh, popularity and the fact that it's dropped to uh, uh, the lowest, uh, I believe, of all premiers uh, in, in the country. Uh, a lot of this on the backs of the energy, on the back of the energy file. Uh, that has to resonate, though, with the government, doesn't it? I mean, they're going to have to pull something out of their hat in order to appease everybody by the next election. What do you think that's going to be? Well, I hope it's just not renaming the time of use rates. <laughs> yeah, really. It's another new smart meter program. Yeah, all right. Um, I really, you know, there are very limitations as to what they can do. I mean, they can certainly, you know, cancel the suspended contracts that they haven't awarded anyway. They can cancel... Uh, some other contracts that have been signed, but, you know, the ground hasn't been broken yet. And they can cancel spending. They spend $400 million on conservation initiatives. They could cancel that. Those are real tangible sort of uh, things they could tackle right away that would um, have an immediate sort of impact on our bills. It would certainly stop the climb and may, may even drop our rates a little bit. And that's what they've got to do. The other thing they've got to do in order to soak up some of that surplus power is perhaps give people a break if they if they can consume more, you know, during the off-peak hours of the day uh, at, and get really low rates, then people might be inclined to do that. You know, we might be inclined to sort of, hey, yeah. we, we got cheaper power during certain times of the day, we'll use more of it. But they have to make it really cheap. I mean, the yeah, they're not making it worth up two hundred and twenty-two percent since yeah. they first brought them in. Hmm. So you know, if the off-peak rates are are the ones you know that have gone up the most, people are not inclined to sort of say, "Oh, well, let's go and use the off-peak rates. Let's drop those down to uh, you know a much lower level, and maybe we'll consume some of that surplus, and we won't be exporting and losing money." You know, there's there's a few things that he could do if he really sets his mind to it. Uh, in the end of the day, it's all about reality and politics. Uh, do you think they're just going to ride this out and just take the heat and and uh, and the carnage until the months leading up to the election and then try to offer some relief? I, I mean, if they do, people are not going to be as naive as to, you know, sort of really believe what they're telling us at that point in time. Yeah. If they don't do something now, I think it's going to continue to be an issue. And you know, and I've got to commend you and and Global TV for doing just a fantastic job at, at sort of keeping the, you know, keeping hammering away at them. And there's been a few other, um, you know, hosts and radio uh, news shows and, and throughout the province that have been doing the same thing. 
and you know a few people like me who once in a while get articles in the Financial Post and and Tom Adams and and people like that. I think you know we're we're creating a stir that they just can't avoid, and and I'm not going to go away for the next couple of years. So yeah, I don't here, think Tom is either. So here's here's finally hoping that this is starting to resonate. That's for sure. Parker Gallant has been with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Let's look at the United States and just be glad it's not us. I don't know. Uh, it seems to be, uh, of course, uh, a never-ending reality show uh, watching uh, President-elect Trump as he gets ready to uh, take office. Uh, in the latest headline, he has chosen Rex Tillerson, who is the uh, Exxon Mobile, uh, sorry, who is with CEO with Exxon Mobile, Mobile, uh, is now Secretary of State or is hoping to be Secretary of State. It's not quite that easy. To talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, columnist uh, and a former ste- uh, Harper, a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and he is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We uh, greatly appreciate this. Let's, sure. ta- let's start with uh, talking about uh, Rex Tillerson and his uh, Donald Trump's choice for uh, sec- Secretary of State. Is this politics? Is this a good choice from where you sit? You know, I'm actually debating it in my own mind right now. I- I'm not opposed, obviously, to Mr. Tillerson, who has been active in Republican politics for many, many years, and so he's not a complete newbie, which is actually good in one sense. The problem is that when the Secretary of State was, position was originally mentioned, the front-runner names typically were people that most people, even if you're not a, a regular politics watcher like you, I, and others, would know who they are. That includes Mitt Romney, John Bolton, and others. Experienced people, either in politics or outside in the academic world, who understand the importance of being a Secretary of State and the give and take that's involved when you're dealing with foreign countries. Now, Mr. Tillerson, who's on the business side of things, certainly understands it to some degree, having been a businessman, and he has ties, say, to Russia, which are obviously very important for the Trump administration, who, for better or for worse, wants to improve relations with Vladimir Putin, the Russian premier. But in the same sense, Mr. Tillerson really does not have an enormous amount of day-to-day experience in politics in general. Being on the Republican Party side and helping in terms of fundraising, advising, etc., certainly counts for something. No one's questioning that. But it's very, very different than, say, Mitt Romney, who ran for the, uh, the uh, GOP during the 2012 presidential election, someone who's actually been involved in the system for many, many years through Massachusetts, where he was the governor there, to a person who certainly understands politics and, as I said before, the give and take of dealing with a foreign country. Mr. Tillerson may surprise us all and actually have that skill set that's needed in a position like Secretary of State, which is sort of a, shall we say, a third, a third wheel in the spoke in terms of how to deal with the leader of your country, the President of the United States, and the leader of a foreign country, and try to sort of build consensus. And if it works that well, that's great. I'm just not sure that necessarily, when you look at the entire pool of talent that Donald Trump had to pick from, that this was the best choice. Uh, obviously, when it comes to the coziness with Russia, some are questioning that. Um, uh, at the end of the day, does America know whether it wants to be friends with Russia or it does not want to be friends with Russia? What is the future of that relationship? Does anybody know what they want it to be? I, you know what? I don't think anyone knows what Donald Trump at times wants exactly, so it's kind of hard to tell. But I think what, what we're sort of getting the inkling of right now, I think this is the part that's actually quite obvious, is that Donald Trump wants to improve relations with Russia because he sees it as a benefit in terms of not just international affairs, but also in terms of safety and security when there are nations that obviously want to attack us one way or the other. The problem, obviously, again as most people know about Vladimir Putin's Russia, is that Putin basically just runs it with an iron fist. He doesn't really care about international relations and negotiations. He doesn't form friendships, or very rarely. And he just basically does things his way, or, and if you don't like it, well, then you go on the highway pretty fast. That's the way he operates. Now, Donald Trump may sort of be a similar type leader as well when he becomes president next month on January 20th. And if that's the case, maybe the two of them can sort of 
see eye to eye on ways to manage the nations, to build better international relations, and perhaps there are going to be business opportunities that will be built between the U.S. and Russia. There are certainly lots of opportunities there to do things. It's just the problem is that Russia has been an incredibly difficult country to deal with in general. You could certainly ask former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, my old boss and friend, who actually knows that quite, quite up front. But, and we certainly saw that during the battle that, or some of the conflicts that Russia's had in recent years with the Ukraine, for example, which in, involved some fighting, and obviously when they took over the Crimea. But, it's, again, Donald Trump basically is going to try to manage things, Scott, his own way, and he doesn't follow any conventional means. The traditional political playbook, as I've told you many times, has been thrown out the window with this man. He does things basically following his gut as he sees it and what he feels is the best way to improve things or enhance relations with other people, individuals, nations, etc. And that's how he's going to operate things with Russia, for better or for worse, I think. Uh, how divisive is that within the Republican Party? There's people like McCain that are saying, hey, you know what, this guy's got it wrong. Russia's our enemy, and, and that's all there is to it. I mean, you know, sort of the old school approach. I mean, is Donald yeah. Trump onto something, or is he just going to let everybody, uh, everybody shake their head while he just goes marching down this path to nowhere? Well, there's enormous apprehension in the Republican Party. I mean, you don't have to be a bigwig to understand that. You know, obviously the contacts I have are very concerned about this. And there are many people who say, see Russia, as you said, John McCain's a good example, as the enemy, not just a, a, a modern enemy, a traditional enemy, a historic enemy. And for that reason, it's very difficult to imagine that a businessman with no political experience, like President-elect Donald Trump, who just walk into office and repair, you know, decades of icy relations and problems and conflict, you know, just by basically waving his fingers, smiling in front of the cameras, using his reality TV experience to build some sort of a weird association with a man, Vladimir Putin, who most people don't get along with and can't get along with. So is it possible that he knows something that we don't? I think the only thing that is fair to say is, this was a man who started at 1%, 1%, when he entered the GOP presidential primaries. In other words, not even the election. We're going that much further back, close to a year and a half. He was basically sitting absolutely nowhere. Within about a month, he's going to become the president of the United States. Clearly, he is able, has been able to build an, an astonishing coalition. He's been able to convince a lot of people that he has... Uh, a political agenda and methods that work better than what traditional politicians have said, including people like John McCain, Mitt Romney, and others. And for that reason, a lot of people are willing to give him the chance to bring in what would probably be an alternative political agenda to say anything that any established Republican or Democratic politician would ever consider bringing in. If it works, he'll be a conquering hero, that being Donald Trump. If it fails, he could have basically the worst one term in office, maybe in the history of the United States. It's a wild gamble, but that's what people decide to do. Uh, on the hacking issue, this seems to be where the party is most divided. Will yep. this in some way um, reveal something that we don't know or reveal something to the president-elect that he doesn't know? It's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I certainly agree with the current pre U.S. president, Barack Obama, for basically stating that he wants this investigated and he wants a report on his desk just before Donald Trump takes office next January. And the reason why I'm actually on side with Obama, and that's pretty rare for me, as you probably can guess, Scott, I think he's right here because this will put an end to all the various conspiracy theories about Russia rigging the election or, or at least attempting to rig the election. Exactly. And all, so there's some logic to this. Now, in terms of what I think is sort of going on, yes, I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, everybody knows of the allegation. We also know that both the FBI and the CIA have differences of opinion in terms of whether there was rigging or there wasn't any attempt at rigging whatsoever. Does, would Donald Trump learn things about Russia that might, say, change the, the course of what he wants to build in terms of relationship with Vladimir Putin come January 20th? It's certainly possible. Because he himself, and I think this is fair to say, he doesn't believe that there was any rigging. I think a lot of people, including me, 
find it very hard to believe that anything major happened. I'm not saying that there may have not been an attempt somewhere. You know, people in their basement, if they can obtain certain codes, can do astonishing things with computers and shut down things such as the Pentagon, as you remember, the computer system that was shut down a few years ago. Hmm. I forget how old the person was. He was 16, 17, 18 years old, and he somehow covertly got into the system and shut it down. So there certainly is the possibility of anything happening in this day and age, but it's just so far-fetched and hard to believe that Russia would, in some sort of systematic fashion, have tried to change the course of the U.S. election, especially in states like the Rust Belt, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, areas that would have been red-flagged in a heartbeat because they've been Democratic-rich states for so long. The whole thing just seems so preposterous to me. But, again, it's a good idea that they're doing this, that they're looking into this, that they're going to have a report out, that there will be at least some sort of final word in terms of whether anything did or did not happen. And for Donald Trump himself, yes, it's important information, because if he finds out that someone did try to do it on his behalf, and you have to assume someone as independent like Trump would not want to hear something like that, that could change the way he perceives international affairs, and the course of international relations during his presidency, whether it be for four years or eight years. Michael Tobis with his columnist, uh, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, what yeah. about missing intelligence briefings? We've heard an awful lot about that lately. Uh, Trump's response was, I believe, uh, he doesn't need to hear the same thing every day from the same people. Yeah. Uh, he's got other people who've got a handle on this sort of thing. You would you would think that if you're coming into a new gig where you really don't know the lay of the land, you'd be taking advantage of every sort of briefing you could. Not the case here. Again, are we making too much out of this? What is this about? Oh, but Scott, he's a smart person. He doesn't <laughs> need these briefings. You know, this is unfor- you know, this is the sort of cavalier attitude that I think frightened not just a lot of small-c conservatives like myself, it frightened a lot of people in general. Um, look, let's be fair to him in one part. He's right. If you're hearing the same information over and over again, I concur. Anyone who's sitting in that seat, be it, a, be it someone who, say, collects garbage to someone who runs a bank, you wouldn't want to hear the same information over and over again. You know, it's nice to have repetition once in a while, but it gets a little much after a bit. So I get that part of it. So if he's frustrated by the fact that in the few meetings he's had, he's covered the same areas and discussed the same issues, I get that part of it. At the same time, whether he likes it or not, Donald Trump doesn't know more than the experts do. He doesn't have to pay attention to anything that they say, but to go into briefings and listen, learn, study if he wants to to some extent. I don't know if he does or not, but he should. And then come out with more knowledge and better knowledge about the issues that are very important to him, I think is very worthwhile, at least in the very beginning. And sure, they were very critical, the Republican Party anyway, of Barack Obama only attending or doing about half the work as time went along. But Obama would actually apparently, from what I've read in reports, would do the readings beforehand and then would ask for special sessions to either add to the knowledge that he currently had or if there was anything new, he could be briefed on it quickly. My hope is that Donald Trump will eventually settle into a pattern where he does read notes and he does read briefings and then sort of follows what Barack Obama did, which is imperfect to be sure, but to just sort of say that, you know, I'm going to just take the you know, briefings as I see them and when I'm ready to or as I see fit is just not a good way to start off, especially when you have to consider that Donald Trump has zero political experience under his belt. And that's the real problem. A picture today with him standing next to Kanye West at the base of Trump Tower. I mean, it just continues. (laughs) The circus just continues. Um, and at the very bottom of the article, something along the lines of that Kanye didn't vote, but if he, if he had voted, he would have voted for Trump. Yeah. How does that help the brand? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I think it just, unfortunately, some people would say this is the end of days, like this is our end times. We're coming to the apocalypse. The, the horsemen are arriving and we're in big trouble. Uh, if Saturday Night Live was writing that, you might be right onto something there. Yeah, for sure. No, look, well, look, I'm sure Mel... Um, What's his name? I'm sure that he'll... Uh, God, I just forgot. Alex, oh, yeah. Alec Baldwin, yeah. thank you. I'm sure Alec Baldwin will have some fun with that in the next week or two. But, look, to, you know, he 
he's allowed to meet whoever he wants, and that's perfectly fine. And there are lots of people who've come through Trump Tower from, say, Dan Quayle all the way to uh, Robert Johnson, the head of BET, the Black Entertainment Network. They're all allowed to meet with Trump, and Trump should be encouraged to meet with different people and hear different perspectives, ideas, issues. Look, he even met with Al Gore, of which the two of them have nothing in common. Kanye West is definitely a bit of a puzzle. You're right, he did announce during a concert, <laughs> I think a week or two before his major breakdown, that he would have voted for Donald Trump if he had actually voted at all. And maybe that was part of the reason behind it. Maybe for all we know, Scott, he's going to be part of the inauguration process. I have mm. no idea. Mm. But it does look quite ridiculous to see two people who are just so diametrically opposed in the way they've led their lives, their businesses, uh, their ideas, etc., to actually meet and do these things. But maybe it all does fit, because Donald Trump has been, as you've said, I've said, and many of others have said, has run in a very much a circus-like atmosphere in terms of this whole political season. So meeting with Kanye West, as crazy as it sounds, may just fit in with everything else. But you're right. In terms of how I feel about it, it's Moonbats. It really is. Uh, no wonder he has no time for intelligence meetings or briefings. I know, He's that's too the busy. Other thing people are saying too. How do you have time to meet <laughs> Kanye and you can't sit down for 15 minutes of a briefing? It is preposterous. Uh, I agree. Uh, so, if uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper was in office, what would he be saying about this election? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I don't like to put words in other people's mouths, but I've known Mr. Harper for over 21 years. I knew him long before. Well, basically, long before he became prime minister, and he was actually out of po- just about out of politics when I first met him. He was just about to head to the National Citizens Coalition way back in '96. You know, I can't say what he would be thinking in private, but I can tell you that certainly he would be looking at it, certainly partially with laughter, because the whole thing is so farcical it's hard to believe. On the other hand. He would also admire the fact that this person who had no political experience and obviously just a very big name and a very big brand in terms of business and just and in terms of uh, media and entertainment had built this unbelievable political campaign and has going to become in about a month's time the leader of the free world. I think a lot of people behind the scenes, even if they have frustrations with Trump, are just astonished that he has come to this point and I think I can certainly speak for Mr. Harper on this. We're all kind of curious to see, did he have this w- wonderful political formula that everybody had either disregarded or just felt that this is complete and utter nonsense and can't be done? And does he have this magic touch that some of us thought we've had for many years, but clearly when certain things come to line and push comes to shove, the relationships either break or they're not built properly? If Donald Trump proves all of us wrong, well, then politics has changed, and it's probably changed forever. But if not, well, I think people like Stephen Harper, Brian Mulroney, uh, many liberal prime ministers like Jacques Chrétien, Paul Martin, and others are probably all going to be sort of saying, well, you know what, this is what happens when you don't put a traditional politician into office. You just have mass pandemonium. Michael Tobe has been with us, columnist and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.